KMTT, Ki Mitzion Tetzay Torah, welcome back. And today is Wednesday, and in this summer's man, the Wednesday share will be given by Harav Moshe Tarragon, a share on ethical character, Midot, ethical attributes and character, Harav Moshe Tarragon. A very interesting trait, a lesser known and lesser discussed, infrequently discussed trait of Ben Adam Achavero, is on display in several opening sections in Sefer Shemos and in Parsha Shemos. Typically, the traits that we build in our moral character, ethical personality, are traits which provide direct and tangible service to another, um, whether it's uh, uh, graciousness, generosity, kind-heartedness, interest in other people's needs, or they help prevent us from aggressive and hostile forms of behavior, um, avoiding jealousy and anger, arrogance, etc. But there's one aspect that's on display in the beginning of Parsha Shemos, which doesn't necessarily provide tangible material benefit to the recipient, nor does it help an individual avoid um, negative or hostile behavior, antagonistic behavior, but it's just an important trait of character and virtue. That's the ability of mitzayim chavero. Even when a person is uh, is dispossessed of the ability to actually help, doesn't possess that capacity to relieve distress and to relieve suffering, does an individual still maintain the capacity to emote? to commiserate, to, to identify, and to empathize in a deep and authentic fashion with another person's suffering. It's on display first in the personality of Miriam, interestingly enough, as I'll say that Miriam was instrumental in encouraging her father, Amram. Miriam encouraged her father to um, reunite with Yochevet. Amram had felt so um, frustrated and even depressed by the various decrees and persecution that he saw marriage as pointless and futile, and he effectively separated from his wife. As Amram was a leader and a public figure, his separation spurred other similar separations, and Miriam encouraged a uh, reuniting of the two, and a reuniting which ultimately bore Moshe Rabbeinu, who was born after the initial separation. So, Miriam is responsible for the birth of Moshe, for better or for worse, as it were, in the unfolding drama of Parsha Shmos. And when the three months elapse and Moshe can no longer be sequestered, so Miriam comes under fire, of course, for recommending um, something which ultimately proves futile. So, V'lo yachlot hatzbino, they can no longer sequester Moshe, a pasuk in Perak Beis. Vatikach lo tevas gomer vatachmerah b'chemar v'azafes vatasim ba sayalad vatasim basuf al svas hayor. And the language of this pasuk, as well as the actual history, Miriam actually preparing this makeshift little cradle for Moshe to drown in. It's not really a cradle of life as much as it is a, a tomb to be buried in as he floats down the Nile. And the Pesach concludes, She stands by the reeds of the Nile at a distance just to see what will happen with Moshe.
Now, in hindsight, we know that Moshe will be rescued by the daughter of Paro, and Miriam will intervene and coordinate for her mother, Yochebed, to continue to serve as Moshe's wet nurse. So Miriam, standing by the Nile, has um, portentous and consequential import. If she doesn't witness Moshe being swept up by Batya, the daughter of Paro, she can never arrange for Moshe to still be supervised by Yochebed. But at the time, Miriam had no hints, nor expectation of divine intervention. So why did she stay by the Nile? What was the purpose of her standing there? Hopeless and pointless, almost, and powerless to assist Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, the answer is, of course, she stands there not because she feels that she can help, but because if Moshe is going to die, and for all apparent reasons it does seem like Moshe will die, that Moshe will be um, fed to the crocodiles, will be eaten alive by the Nile River and its inhabitants, at the very least she wants to stand there and be with him during these last moments, even if she can't offer any material relief or provision, she can still commiserate and identify with Moshe's suffering rather than turning her back on him and abandoning him at this very, very crucial and even tragic moment. Chazal, a very interesting Lashon in Bishalach, in the Mechilta of Parshas Bishalach, quoting this Pasuk, She stood firm, taught, resolute, her, the sister of Moshe stood there at the Nile at a distance to try to discern what would happen. Chazal say, Ein Lashen Yitziva Ela Nevua. Very interesting phrase for prophecy. To remain resolved and convinced and firm. Un- unyielding to pressure. In this case, not public pressure, but the pressure of the situation. So the wine and Chazal may be implying that she did have some sort of prophetic um, foreshadowing of Moshe's salvation and that is the reason that she did accompany Moshe because she realized that despite the bleak prospect something miraculous would occur and, and she would still have some tangible role a different way to interpret this Michalta is that when Chazal in, intuit the sense of Nevuah from the Tzav or the Lashon of Yetziva they don't mean that she actually saw prophetically that Moshe would be rescued Rather, rather, the very act of accepting limitations and understanding that in this case, logically, she had no active and practical role to play, but remaining committed to Moshe, uh, maintaining that firm and unbending commitment to Ben Adam Lechavero, at least at an emotional level, even if she couldn't help Moshe, at least commiserating and empathizing with Moshe, that itself is prophetic, not in this ability to forecast the future, but as a sign of moral virtue and of um, ethical strength and, and inner strength. But Chazal certainly note this moment in Miriam's career where she has a choice of sort of turning her back on Moshe as opposed to trying to assist, and not even assisting, but at least empathizing and sympathizing with Moshe Rabbeinu. Ironically, it seems as if Moshe, and not so ironically, but understandably, it seems as if Moshe acquired this trait, even though his relationship with Miriam really was, wasn't a very um, frontal and intimate one growing up in the house of Paro. But Moshe walks out of Paro's house in the next parak. This story with Miriam unfolds in the beginning of Parak Bays, 
In the next parak, Vahi Bayamim Mahim Vayigdal Moshe Vayetzei Alachav Vayar B'Siv Lotam Vayarish Mitzri Makei Shivrim Meachav. So Moshe witnesses an Egyptian taskmaster um, whipping and abusing a Jew. Vayifen Kovacho Vayarki Enish, and of course he intervenes and rescues the Jewish life. On that first pasuk, Rashi has a very interesting phrase on the on the words the pasuk Vayar B'Siv Lotam. He noticed. Of course, he noticed their suffering. The end of the pasuk conveys that notice. Vayar he, he noticed that an Egyptian was abusing or torturing a Jew. What does the pasuk convey with this seemingly redundant and superfluous phrase? Vayar Rashi writes, "Nasan enav velibo alehem." Moshe had a choice. He could have ignored. That suffering, he could have sort of justified and exonerated himself by saying, this is not my battle. Um, he could have felt disenfranchised in the Jewish people, or even if he felt like th- this was, or these people were his brothers, but perhaps it was impolitic. Perhaps it wasn't wise for him to intervene. By saving this one Jew, or by at least identifying with the persecution of this one Jew, he may be compromising his ability in the future Politically, maybe spending too much political currency on one individual. But Moshe makes that decision. Nasan Enav Velibo Lihios Meitzer Alehem. He determines, he almost chooses to feel that empathy, to feel that pity. And once he feels that pity, he's of course left with no choice but to intervene. And it is, it's eerie, but fitting that Miriam's empathy and sympathy almost breeds it in her brother Moshe and it's that sympathy which ultimately leads to the redemption of the Jewish people leads to Moshe's shattering of the bondage of Mitzrayim um, Moshe's sympathies is probably on display a little bit later in a different context in Parsha Shmos where Moshe travels to Midian fleeing from Paro and his henchmen he's a fugitive on the lamb and he arrives at the well in Midian and see some strange Midianite women with whom he has absolutely no relationship or, or association and they are themselves being manipulated by the local shepherds they're being chased away so that the waters could be um, seized solely by the Midianite shepherds and it certainly was from a political standpoint unwise for Moshe to intervene vulnerable as he was on the run as he was, he should have kept a low profile, and here he sympathizes very deeply with people in pain and in suffering, and even though this isn't a sympathy on national lines, um, these aren't Jews who share his historical fate, but on humanistic lines, these are people that Moshe recognizes their distress, and ultimately does intervene and provide material benefit and relief, but this intervention is driven by a deep ability to empathize and sympathize. A very interesting Pasuk in Shmos, where Kaddish Baruch Hu empathizes with um, Am Yisrael. So the king dies, and his successor um, intensifies the persecution. So this is in Perak Beis, Pasuk Hafei. And Hashem listens to their prayers. Vaishma Lokim is Nakasam, Vaiskor Lokim is Brisawa, Sabraham is Hakvias Yaakov, Hashem remembers the uh, 
the various covenants with Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and intends to redeem the Jewish people from Mitzrayim. And then again, a, a superfluous phrase, God saw the Jewish people and he understood. Well, what do you mean he understood? He already remembered the covenant with Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov and determined to rescue Am Yisrael at some point. What is this final phrase? Add. So Rashi, um, Rashi interprets Natan Alehem Lev. God placed, so to speak, His heart upon them. and He didn't ignore or avoid considering their plight. This concept, Natan Alehem Lev, to determine to sympathize with a person suffering is almost precisely the phrase which Rashi describes Moshe's sympathy when he witnessed the Jews suffering. Natan enav velibo lios meitzar. It's Rashi in Perak Beis, Pasuk Aleph. Nasan enav velibo. He placed his eyes in his heart. In response to Moshe's decision to sympathize rather than to insulate himself against human suffering, Sakharish Baruch Hu, similarly, and, and this is a very, very... Um, anthropomorphic description of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but I think that Rashi's description is meant to evoke the imagery of Moshe Rabbeinu and to realize that HaKadosh Baruch Hu's treatment is reflective and commensurate to human being decision in the moral field, in the moral realm. It's a very well-known machlok is cited by Chazal, quoted by the Gemara, very famous moral predicament, moral conundrum. Two people traveling in a desert. One jug of water. If the water is divided, they'll each die. If one drinks the water, he'll he'll remain alive. He'll survive, but his friend will die. What should be done? And of course, we're all familiar with the accepted and halakhically endorsed position of Rabbi Akiva, that the water should be Drunk should be imbibed by one person. It's better for one person to live than for two people to die. And this, of course, is in rejection of the dissenting opinion of Ben Petara, who claimed that the water should be split and two people should die. Now, we've become so accustomed to endorsing Rabbi Kiva's position, and not only is it, is it our custom, but it's also logically compelling. What good, from a practical standpoint, will the death of two bring? The Torah writes, as Rabbi Kiva himself suggested or asserted, You have to worry about a person's life, but as long as that worry doesn't compromise or imperil your own life and your own health. So in this case, delivering water or dividing the water and delivering it to your friend will imperil your life, so you're exonerated of any moral obligation. And Petara, interestingly enough, was describing a very, very different and conflicting moral issue. You don't abandon someone in their time of need, and drinking the water solely without dividing it to your friend would essentially be abandoning him. And then Petara's morality, so to speak, is suicidal. But his moral standards, in this case, again, moral standards which may not be practically driven, and perhaps in a real world, we mustn't be absolutist in asserting extremist moral stands when they seem to be impractical given real-time considerations. But there's a certain inner logic and pure logic to Ben Petara's statement. 
seizing the water without sharing it would be tantamount to abandoning. And if I'm in a place of suffering, as my friend is, and I don't abandon, I just stand there as Miriam stood there in the days of Moshe, as Moshe was floating down the Nile. And even if you reach a point where your reality, your predicament does not allow or does not offer any opportunity for material intervention, in this case is a classic example where I can't really save his life or my life, I mustn't abandon or betray. And basic moral demands of sympathy, in this case, sanction and dictate that the water be split. This type of behavior, which Ben Petara suggested in that obviously very theoretical situation of the water in the desert, don't imagine that that situation has repeated itself too often. In most cases, either water is prepared at ample supply, or unfortunately, where situations evolve where no or little water is available. But there's a historical manifestation of Ben Petara's position. In Megillas Rus, Naomi's two widowed daughter-in-laws begin to accompany her back from the plains of Moab to the pasture lands of Beis Lechem of Israel. Now again, keep in mind that we all know the outcome of the story. We know that the woman, Ruth in this instance, who will travel back with Naomi, will launch Jewish monarchy and Jewish dynasty. But at that point, it was a hopeless decision to return to a land beyond hope, beyond expectation. Ruth was the sworn enemy of the Jewish people from Midjan. Her own mother-in-law with whom she was returning had betrayed Jewish needs and Jewish society. You can't have expected a hero's welcome. And Arpa, to a degree adopts the position of Rabbi Akiva. It's bad enough that Nomi is returning and must return to starve to death. What good will it have to have another mouth to feed? And a practically driven morality dictates that she returns to Midian. And Ruah takes a very courageous and heroic decision, but one which, again, given her perspective, was suicidal. And yet she can't abandon her mother-in-law, even if it comes in her own detriment, even if it's self-defeating. And she acts in a way that's fairly reminiscent of Ben Petara, of splitting that jug of water, and that overall reaffirms this trait of mitzayar imchaver, of just simply walking alongside your mother-in-law, standing by the Nile as Moshe meets certain death, because the alternative of abandoning and remaining callous or indifferent to human suffering, that alternative is absolutely unacceptable. And virtue and morality is not just expressed when a person is empowered to change his world, but even when he's lost all capacity to change. There's a human and emotive element that a person can always bring to a particular existential crisis. The uh, psukim in Parshas Re'eh, which describe the mitzvah of tzedakah, these psukim in Re'eh include a very interesting word. Perak tesvav, pasak yud in devarim, nasan titain lo, person should deliver tzedakah to an indigent person. V'lo yirelev avcha besitcha lo, according to some Rishodim, this is actually a prohibition against delivering tzedakah in a rude and insensitive and uncaring fashion. 
point in Menor Yishonim, if a person delivers staka with his head turned away from the Ani, um, conveying a sense of disinterest, or even, um, not just disinterest, but displeasure at having to part with his money, Haraz Halev, he may indeed receive an Onesh, and maybe even surrender and forfeit the mitzvah of tzedakah. V'lo yeralev avcha b'sitchalo, and the Pasuk concludes, Ki b'glala davar azeh yevrachacha Hashem lokecha b'chol ma'asecha b'chol meshlach yadecha. Because of this behavior, and presumably behavior refers to the overall inclination, the overall orientation to tzedakah, Ki b'glala davar azeh yevrachacha Hashem lokecha, Hashem will bless you, b'chol ma'asecha b'chol meshlach yadecha. Chazal in the Sifri interpret the phrase Biglal Hadavar not just as a reference to the overall process of tzedakah, namely the connotation of Davar meaning this thing, this experience, but Davar in the literal sense, the speech. What type of speech is the Pasuk lauding or extolling? So the Sifri writes, and Rashi cites it, that even if you don't have any money, you can still perform staka with your tongue, and in this case it doesn't just mean your tongue, but a heartfelt communication. As the Rambam writes in Parak Yud, Halacha hey, Sha'al ha'ani mimchav, and ani requests money, ve'ein biyadcha klum lo, and you don't have any money to deliver, pa'isehu bidvarim, should comfort him and soothe him with verbal communication, to listen to his plight, offer advice, or just offer an ear to listen. The certainly don't scream and demean the poor person. And at this point, the Rambam, in the middle of Halacha Hay, describes the type of emotional distress the Ani is undergoing in an attempt to elicit or engage a person in that commiseration. His heart is broken and shattered. And the Rambam concludes, Sorry, a person should be like a father. Person should take the role of a father. Who is the father of the poor. The Rambam, again based on the Pasuk and based on the Sifri, recognizes that the heart and soul of Tzedakah is not the money delivered, but the ability to identify and to commiserate. It's not an easy task, especially in an age which very often we are overwhelmed by an irrepressible stream of anim, faceless almost, who come to our door. But to the degree that we can, and sometimes there are people that frequent and do frequently we come to our home and we sort of get to know them a little bit rather than just sort of acquitting ourselves with delivering money to try to convey that emotional bridge that emotional sense of caring as best as we can whether we can or we can't give money or whether we can or we can't give as much as they solicit to recognize that the Tzedakah moment the Tzedakah framework provides a very very powerful chance a very powerful potential to excel in this trait of empathy and sympathy for another human being. And there's a very beautiful medrash that uh, describes, I mentioned Moshe and Miriam, the um, theoretical discussion of the two people wandering in the desert, 
and ultimately the heroism of Rus. It's a very beautiful medrash in Avos Rivnasan, a very beautiful Mishnah about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who lost a child. This is in Perak Yudalad. And his Talmidim, his various Talmidim, visited him in an attempt to console him and to comfort him. And the story is told of Rabbi Eliezer who enters and tries to contextualize or generalize this event. Tragedy always is more crushing when it is taken out of context, but when it's placed back into the overall context of human experience and human suffering, sometimes its edge is relieved. Human beings suffer. And part of Nechem Avelim is to provide that broader context and to somehow, if not alleviate, at least soften some of the trauma. So based on that strategy, Rabbi Eliezer claims, well, you're not the first person to have lost a child. Adam Harishon lost a child, and he was consoled. He lost Tevel. And subsequent Talmidim point to other members of Am Yisrael who also lost children and were able to recover. Whether it's Aaron losing Nadav and Avihu, or Davin Melech losing his child. And quite the opposite impact occurred. Instead of being comforted and consoled, Yochanan Mazake was even more upset. Amar Lawi spoke to his Talmidim one after another who had invoked these precedents of people losing children. Now I'm not just suffering on my own, on my own loss. Now I've begun to commiserate and empathize with what Adam went through. And if anything, that has plunged me into deeper despair thinking about what Aaron must have gone through, thinking about what David Amalek must have endured when facing his tragedy. This is truly an astounding portrait. And if it were not attributed to Yochanan and Zakkai, we may have assumed that the person claiming these responses was being sanctimonious, falsely pious. The prospect of an individual facing such a crushing personal tragedy still maintaining the capacity to identify with people who he never met, whose trauma he never shared, and to still feel their pain just by mentioning, on the one end displays an incredible commitment to Jewish history, a, a sense of heritage and belonging to people whom you haven't met, but sort of almost sharing their lives and experiences, and the ability to share those experiences so deeply that you empathize with their suffering. This, to me, is perhaps the single most impressive portrait of Mitzrayim Chavero. It's one thing for a brother or a sister to empathize. Moshe with his brothers, Miriam with her brother, or Rus with her mother-in-law, or the two friends or acquaintances walking through the desert. There are real, live, emotional bonds that have been created, and betraying those bonds would be an abdication of virtue. But for Yochanan and Zakai to feel their pain so deeply is an astounding portrait of the ability of the human heart to empathize and to commiserate with other people. Again, in a situation in which no material um, solution, no material benefit can be provided. And perhaps one final portrait of empathy and commiseration. Um, it's taken from a medrash which describes the Karbanos of a Nazir. Several references to um, the Nazir's 
failure, if he becomes tummy, and the korbanos that are offered in the wake of that failure, birds, shnei tarim or shnei b'neiona. Why does he bring such, so to speak, cheap korbanos? Why is he allowed off the hook? Typically, people who fail, who sin, are expected to offer more sizable and substantial korbanos, animals, par, keves, sayer, and the Nazir brought it upon himself. No one asked him to pledge his Naziris. And yet you know, when he slips and falls and fails, moderate carbonists are expected. Birds, which clearly don't cost anywhere near as much as cattle. So there's Yishalmi in Sota and a Medrash in Bamidbar, which each more or less state the same, state the obvious. Yishalmi in Sota is actually talking about a Mitzara. The Medrash in Bamidbar is referring to a Nazir, but the sentiment is the same. This person has suffered enough. And the Torah acknowledges that person's suffering, and therefore offers a bit of clemency and demands a more moderate carbon rather than a more economically stifling carbon. The Torah has compassion for the Nazir and allows him to exonerate his failed Nazirus with the carbon that a typically a poor person offers. Or as the Shami and Selta speaks about a Mitzarah, once he's already undergone such suffering, he should be seen as your brother who hasn't sinned and should be treated in um, embracing and endearing fashion. Here, the Mitzorah, on the one hand, and the Nazar, on the other hand, have brought about their own suffering. And certainly in the case of the Mitzorah, there is real criminal, dubious, and hostile behavior, which is responsible for the Mitzorah, spreading tales, slander, ruining people's reputation. In the case of the Nazir, his behavior isn't as mendacious, or as dastardly, but it's certainly criminal, excepting a Naziris who is ill-prepared to maintain slacking off, carelessness, lack of vigilance, and allowing himself to become impure. So whatever suffering they endured, whether it's the week-long isolation and quarantine of the Mitzara, or the responsibility to sort of restart the Naziris and all the previous days of Naziris being cancelled, not counting to fulfill his requirement, his obligation, whatever suffering they endured, they deserve. And the suffering is not just deserved, but is a has a penal element. They're being punished each in their own way. The Mitzarah with Tzaras and the Nazir with being forced to restart the process. But the Torah says, independent of the moral acceptability of their decisions and the, the deservedness of their plight, when human beings suffer, their suffering has to be acknowledged, even if that suffering is deserved, and even if that suffering has a penal element they're being punished for failure, for mistake, from our standpoint, and in this case the Torah is voicing our standpoint, there's got to be some recognition and acknowledgement of that suffering at a human level, some ability to empathize and commiserate, and in the case of a Nazar at least, from a practical level, to offer some allowance and leniency in the type of carbon that he'll offer.